Good morning. How far away is God for you? I mean, in your, in your sort of daily interactions or your, your imagination, are you, are you Jesus is my homeboy sort of, sort of Christian? Or are you, does God seem really, really irrelevant or distant or far off, preoccupied with many other things other than your life? I wonder how much doubt and uncertainty uh, can creep up for us because we imagine God in some other universe or some other space-time continuum or, or whatever, that he is very aloof, apart from us, that maybe he did important things back in history and biblical times, but now we're just sort of doing most of our lives on our own. Well, as we think about that question, it's also striking to me with all this language about the priests and the sacrifices that virtually every religion that I can, I can think of has something like a priest, has something like a mediator, some sort of expert, some sort of yogi or psychic or priest whether it's Western or Eastern or ancient or modern, there is some sort of priest. And so really I want us to get to ask that. Why is that? And then we're going to see why Hebrews is so convinced that we have an incredibly unique and perfect priest in Christ. Let's pray before we jump in. God, you are indeed far off. You are transcendent and holy, and yet we know as we have just sung that you have come to us in such a near and intimate way. Help us to know what that means. Help us to open our hearts and minds to that truth. Lord, would you comfort those who are brokenhearted and challenge those who are stubborn and hard-hearted, Lord. Speak to us your gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing as we jump into this book of Hebrews, the first thing I want us to, to realize is that we need a priest. And if you don't realize that, or if you don't think that, not only are you uh, part of the vast minority of the history of the world, uh, but you're probably also assuming something about God. That we can just come off the street, do our, our thing during the week, or do our thing during the day, and we can just approach God without any sort of priest, any, any sort of mediator. Now we prepare for all sorts of meetings, right? Throughout the week, or if you're meeting someone important, you've got an important business meeting, you're going to give a class presentation, you prepare to meet someone, or you prepare for an important meeting. If you're meeting someone truly sort of dignified, the Queen of England, you actually will receive instructions of like how to shake hands and how to bow and give certain salutations you will prepare to meet them. And so, should it be similar when it comes to God? Should we need some sort of preparation or at least some sort of go-between when we come into God's presence or not? I mean, do we live in such a, a democracy that everything is just, well, everyone, one person, one vote, and we can just all go to God however we want, whenever we want, 
regardless of the priest or the mediator or how we're going to do it, regardless of the access. Is that, is that sort of what we think? I think a, uh, a big challenge for us is if we worry or if we're not sure if God is really near and if we really need a, a priest or a mediator is that God is probably pretty small in our imagination. That God has become too small in our faith, or that we have become too big, or, or a combination of both, right? The gap between us and God has become pretty small, that we can, we can cross that gap whenever we want and however we want. Now, Elena uh, read this wonderful passage from Leviticus 16 as we, we trudge through all that details about the blood and the goats and the ram offering, the sin offerings and and I had us read that for, for a couple of reasons that we're going to see throughout the sermon. But one is, you see the job of a priest was bloody. The priest was not what we may have a picture of as a priest today, that he's sort of clean and set apart and has his life together and doesn't really get his hands into the muck and mire of real life. This priest had a dirty job, a bloody job. And he dealt with animals, alive and dead. And so if we think we don't need some sort of mediator, the Old Testament is filled with descriptions of ways that we do need a mediator. And did you catch the, the sort of origin of the term scapegoat in that passage? Now that has a, a derogatory uh, implication now, but really it's just meant to be someone who is a substitute for someone else's guilt. And that goat... The translation now is Azazel, which we think may have meant scapegoat, but the whole meaning of what the goat does still applies, that the goat bore the sins of the people of Israel, and he ran off into the wilderness to be forgotten, to show just how far the sins had gone, because this God actually is gracious to forgive our sins. Okay, so we're going to come back to, to Leviticus 16 a little bit, but if we do, in fact, realize that we need a priest, the book of Hebrews is, uh, spends many, many chapters in convincing us why Jesus is our priest. And not only is Jesus our priest, he is the one great high priest that we need. Now we're jumping into uh, the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5 of, of the book of Hebrews. But if we were um, more consistently in the book, you would remember that the first few chapters are pointing out that the Son, he's usually referred to as the Son, uh, the Son of God, is greater than any other competitor. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than all of the angels in chapter 1. And so the book of Hebrews has a very high view of Jesus the Son. The very start of the book of Hebrews starts off by saying, long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son. There's this final climactic we don't have to look for any more revelation because this is the final word to us from the Son through whom he made 
all things. The one who is the exact imprint of his nature and the glory of God. You see this, this huge picture. So you would expect that when he starts talking about priests, he's going to immediately assert how Jesus is greater than all these other priests. And he will do that in Hebrews. The bulk of the rest of these next about five chapters is about that. How Jesus is so much greater than these other priests. But the passage we have today, the passage where he really starts getting into what it means for Jesus to be a priest, is actually showing how he is similar and how he actually meets the Old Testament qualifications to be a priest. Now that should surprise us because of this huge view that he has of the Son. But he makes two main points within this uh, idea of a priest, that he is one appointed by someone else, not himself, and that he is beset with weakness. So the first one is he's simply appointed by God, just as the priests uh, of the Old Testament, they didn't take this on themselves. There wasn't an election that they would run and try to get voted in, and they thought they would be the best priests, so they're going to put themselves up for uh, election to be the priest. They were appointed by God, um, and it was this passing down. So he's, he's getting at this aspect of humility. And so he quotes Psalm 2, where you have this picture of the father saying to the son, you are my son, which is also quoted throughout the Gospels, that we can trust him. And this is a pretty amazing point if you, if you think about it for a, a moment, because if anyone had the right to appoint themselves to be priest, it would be the co-equal, co-eternal son of God, right? He could have handled that. He, could, he had every right to do it. But like we read in, in Philippians 2, it says that even though he was equal with God, he did not consider that something to grasp or take advantage of, to use to his own sort of uh, boasting, but he humbled himself. And that's exactly what we see here. It's, it's contrary, right, to a lot of the, the sort of political world where we see everybody is selling their souls in order to exalt themselves, in order to gain power and glory. Jesus is the opposite. He didn't appoint himself to priest. God the Father appointed him to this job. And then, not only is he humble in this way, but he is also beset with weakness or clothed with weakness because he took on our flesh. And this is really what I want us to, to sit in for a few minutes because there are some really amazing points that the author wants to make about this aspect of Christ. So the similarity is that Jesus took on flesh and blood. Uh, he took on the, the weakness of humanity, if you will. At the end of chapter 4, we heard read that he was tempted as we are. But he had to learn obedience. Now, why did he have to learn obedience? How can you say that Jesus had to learn anything if he's the, the son of God? Well, he had to learn obedience because he's the co-equal, co-eternal son of God. He didn't have to submit ever before the incarnation. 
He didn't ever have to submit to anyone. And now he's choosing to do that. It's choosing to take on a human nature, a human will, that he is then going to submit to the Father as our human wills ought to. So he takes on this weakness, which we're going to come back to in a second. He, he has to learn obedience through the humiliation of the incarnation. And then in verse 7 we read, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Do you realize that God has chosen to identify with us so perfectly simply because he wanted to? He chose to take on human weakness, human ability to sin, human temptation, that he would save us. But let's think about that for a minute. Some of us may struggle with this idea of, was Jesus really tempted? He, didn't, he wasn't tempted by looking at Twitter during a sermon, or he wasn't tempted by, you know, the, the sort of common temptations that we think about today, maybe. But that misses the point. That misses the point because the essence of sin is what? Lack of conformity to God's will. The essence of sin is worshiping something else besides God or in addition to God. And Jesus did walk through life every day with all of the demonic powers having lots of reasons to want to defeat him. He did walk through that. And if you have ever faced, and I'm sure you have, a sustained temptation, it gets harder and harder the longer you go, kind of like holding your breath. If you make it one day and then fall, it's not that hard. But if you make it a couple weeks and a couple years, then it gets hard. Imagine having all of the devil's powers thrown at you. All the while, knowing that he had every right not to do what he was doing. When, he, when uh, Jonathan Edwards was reflecting on Jesus in Gethsemane, he reminded us that Jesus had every right to say, why should I, infinitely greater than all the angels of heaven, should I plunge myself into these dreadful torments for these sinners? Why should I leave all my love and glory and take this violent agony of burning into my soul for these who will never repay me and don't love me enough to stay awake with me in my moment of greatest need. Have you ever been in a place where you had every right to win an argument or every right to sort of claim supremacy in the room or, or claim that you were better than someone else and didn't? And maybe you're like me and... You appear to be humble, and then you get proud in yourself because you have appeared to be humble, and 
doesn't work out so well. It's because it's not real humility. But imagine the temptation that Jesus had every day that he could have done that. That he could have done that. And then we start to see that his temptation is actually far, far greater than the temptations we face. He doesn't have a trump card called the divine nature that just asserts its will on his human will so that he'll be perfectly in obedient and conformity and he never, ever is tempted. That's not the picture that we have. He is perfectly human facing the temptations that we face. And I would encourage you to even just reflect on the passages in the Gospels when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane agonizing over what he is going to have to face in the cross. Right before he's arrested, he's crying out to God. God, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Sweating blood, tears of blood, sweating drops of blood in the Gospel of Luke. I realize that this can be somewhat um, maybe complicated when we get into the mystery of, of the Trinity. Um, but one, I think one helpful way to, to understand this a little bit deeper, and, and, and this gets very, very practical and relevant, um, is this idea of the double meaning of grace. And so this comes up in the, the early church when they're trying to understand what does it mean to say that, God, that Jesus is God and that Jesus is human. And, and the one major critic of the early church, Arius, is trying to argue that Jesus cannot be God. How can he be God if he's praying to God? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Surely you guys have asked that question too. How can Jesus really be God if he has to pray to God? Or if he has to pray these sorts of prayers, like, take this cup from me. How can he be God? How would you respond to that? What does this have to do with Jesus being the human priest? Well, listen to the way uh, one author puts it. James Torrance. The God to whom we pray, so one response to Arius was, you don't understand what grace is. You don't understand what the God of grace is doing in Jesus. Let's see if this helps us. The God to whom we pray and with whom we commune knows we want to pray, try to pray, but cannot pray. But God comes to us as man in Jesus Christ to stand in for us. Pray for us, teach us to pray, and lead our prayers. God in grace gives us what he seeks from us. A life of prayer in giving us Jesus Christ and the Spirit. You see what he's, he's, he's doing there? That there's this double movement of grace. He goes on to say, God gives himself to us as God, freely and unconditionally to be worshipped and adored. He shows us who God is in lots of ways, not just in Jesus, in lots of ways through creation, through our conscience and seeing the purity of morality. He shows us who God is to be worshipped and adored. But grace also means that God comes to us in Jesus Christ as man to do for us and in us what we cannot do. 
He offers a life of perfect obedience and worship and prayer to the Father that we might be drawn by the Spirit into communion with the Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let's see if we can try to understand this. this. This argument was made in a book about worship. Now, why is that about worship? Because worship is not about us doing something for God now that God has done something for us. Worship is us participating in the humanity of Jesus Christ as humans ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we we are made, each and every one of you are made for perfect communion with God. That's what you want, whether you know it or not. That's the only thing that will satisfy you, whether you know it or not. That is the relationship that the deepest, darkest longings in your heart cries out for. Perfect communion with God. Perfect relationship with God. And God is not sitting back, having done things in history, he's not sitting back waiting for us to meet him in in response. God is coming down to us by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ. So that if we are in Christ, we are experiencing this perfect communion with God. Now, it's not fully perfect now, right? Because our bodies haven't been redeemed. But if Jesus is the human priest who is clothed with weakness, and we are in Christ, we end up being in this sort of priest. That's really what the priesthood of all believers is meant to be. It's not meant to say we're all priests. It's meant to say there's one priest, and we have access to that one priest. You don't have to go through me. You go to the one priest. There's one other thing that happens in in that passage about Jesus' human qualifications. If you noticed, he said at the, very, at, the, uh, at the beginning that every human priest of the Old Testament, what did they have to do? He's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And in Leviticus 16, you see he has to, it talks about having to deal with the priest's specific own sins as well as the sins of Israel. How does that work for Jesus? His life. His life is his offering. So Jesus, the priest, doesn't end up taking someone else or another goat or another ram. He, through suffering, learns obedience and places his life on the altar. For us. He's the scapegoat. He's the one that was sacrificed outside the city. He's the, the substitute. And so this, the, the view of priest almost gets molded into this perfect, uh, uh, he is the mediator. He's doing what the ram and the priest were meant to do together. And 
And so God is treating him like a son by teaching him obedience through suffering. And then in chapter 12 of Hebrews, he's going to tell us, he's going to treat us like sons in Christ being adopted because he's going to teach us through suffering what obedience looks like. And on and on we can go to see how our lives are meant to be more and more perfectly in Christ. So he is this humble, human, beset with weakness priest. He is the priest that takes what it means to be compassionate to the sort of most literal level, if you will, willing to to suffer with and suffer in his people. He doesn't... um, he doesn't stay far off or aloof. And then there's one, one final point I want to make here. It comes in verse uh, 9. Jesus was made perfect. Verse 9 says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That word perfect is, is uh, used a lot in Hebrews, and it would be an interesting study for you all to sort of look out to see where in Hebrews uh, perfect is mentioned. It has this idea of complete. The same root word that Jesus used on the cross in John, it is finished. Having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Can you believe that? What would that do to your trust to realize that your priest has been made perfect? And that, like the the quote in the pre-worship meditation, that as secure as Jesus is in heaven, so too are you. That Jesus, having been ascended, he is enthroned as king, and you are in Christ Simply through faith. That's what a priest does. A priest mediates. A priest goes between. And we don't need any more. We don't have to turn to any other priest. We don't have to turn to any other experts or yogis or, or any other sort of thing because this priest has been made perfect. He is the source of eternal salvation. Man, is God distant? Is he far off? Is he too busy taking care of other things? This passage is amazing. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Are you suffering? Are you offering up loud cries and tears right now? This is a Savior that knows you, that knows exactly what you are going through. He offered up loud cries and tears even though he had a get-out-of-jail-free card the whole time. He didn't get out. He stayed. He accomplished his, his mission in order to be made perfect, 
and now he reigns as king. Let's come to him. Let's trust him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, to think that we have eternal salvation. It can seem too good. It can seem even irrelevant, Lord. Show us what it means that you have saved us. The work of Christ is complete, and now your Spirit is working in mighty ways to submit your enemies to his feet. Father, we ask that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would come to the Father through the one priest by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a good and glorious gospel, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.